Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. This is Dr. Kenyatha Loftus, host of New Books in Political Science. We're here today talking with Dr. Lester Spence, Assistant Professor of Political Science at Johns Hopkins University. We're talking about his new book, Stare in the Darkness, The Limits of Hip-Hop and Black Politics. I really enjoyed this book, and I think you will too. It is very well-written and highly accessible. On top of that, it's theoretically engaging and methodologically rigorous. What more could you ask for from a political science book? Well, here we are, New Books in Political Science, talking with Lester Spence about Stare in the Darkness. Listen in. I'm here with Dr. Lester Spence, Assistant Professor of Political Science at Johns Hopkins University. Uh, he is also a commentator, commentator at NPR. Uh, he was on, in the barbershop last week. Uh, he is a native of Detroit and a graduate of the University of Michigan. Importantly for us, he is the author of the new book, Stare in the Darkness, The Limits of Hip-Hop and Black Politics. Uh, Lester, it's good to have you here. Oh, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about your background. Um, who are some of your mentors and what sparked your interest in political science? Um, my, uh, so I am a, a native Detroiter. I, I was born in Detroit. I was raised in a poor working class suburb of Detroit called Inkster. Uh, and I attended University of Michigan for undergrad and for grad school. So I was at Michigan basically from 87 to 2000. Uh, Over that period of time, I accumulated a number of intellectual mentors, some of whom uh, I met or encountered at the University of Michigan. You know, these include uh, Ralph Story, who was one of my uh, first English, who was my first English professor, uh, Haynes Walton, who was my dissertation advisor. And then it also includes people like uh, Harold Cruz, uh, who's written? Who written? Who has written in the Crisis of Negro Intellectual? I think one of the most important books, not just of the civil rights movement, but of Black life and kind of the 20th century and Black politics. And then uh, also uh, someone like James Chaffers, who's also a professor, uh, or he's retired now, but he's a professor of like architecture and urban design at the University of Michigan. Those, and then a number of other people, on and off the streets, have really shaped how I think about how I not only what I study, but how I um, how I study what I study. Mm-hmm. So anyone who is familiar with you or you and your scholarship knows that uh, connecting the divide between the academy and the public is a big part of your academic agenda. We even see it come through in this book uh, on the content side, but also in the methodology where you seem to barter a lesson in research methodology for survey participation from high school students. Can you talk about what it means to you to be a public intellectual in this sense? Um, so uh, there are a number of people who got their PhD because um, they were interested in contributing solely to the literature. There are there are other people who are interested kind of re- in a related sense to solving a specific puzzle um, that's embedded in the literature. And then yet others who are interested in studying under a specific person, like being, um, I don't know, being like um, Robert Putnam's student or something. Um, for me, I was a student activist at the University of Michigan 
Um, and I grew up in and around Detroit at a time of like growing black power. And it was the contradictions of black life. It was the contradictions or the challenges posed by being a black student at the University of Michigan at a very specific time that led me to pursue um, that led me to pursue the academy. Right. So for me, I never I always felt that my mission was not just to do scholarship, but to do scholarship that changed people's lives, even as it increased uh, the uh, the knowledge that we had about political science or about the study of politics. Right. So um, when I did the survey research for this project, I went to a number of high schools in the St. Louis area. And I really believed that as I was getting something from the kids, that it was my responsibility to kind of give them something in return. So what I did was I took the opportunity um, to teach them about the kind of nuts and bolts of not just survey methodology, but a political inquiry. Because one of the assumptions that we make is that Social science is kind of like a rocket science. And granted, it is. Social science is really complex and is not something you can kind of step into without uh, without training. But the way we make assumptions, the way we make causal claims, black kids and white kids in general, there are a number of people who have the ability to make causal claims um, that don't necessarily understand themselves as having that ability. Right. So I basically walked them through. Um, using my survey, I walked, you know, after they take, after they'd already taken it, I walked them through the nuts and bolts of like making causal claims and of assessing, uh, relationships and how you would test them. Right. And I got a great, I got a, um, I got a kick out of it. I, I it really helped me out. I mean, and then the kids, I think got a lot out of it too. That's really awesome. Well, Lester, I have to tell you, I was really feeling this book, Stare in the Darkness, The Limits of Hip Hop and Black Politics. And I was wondering if you could tell us how you came to write this book. Um, so I, I did my dissertation on um, Detroit politics, on gender in Detroit politics. And my first job was in St. Louis. So I just at that time, I didn't have the math. I didn't have, have enough um, mastery of the job to take my dissertation on Detroit and make it into kind of a Detroit center book because I was basically like eight hours away. And at that time, my family was young. So I, I was really in St. Louis. So I came up with the idea of, kind of a project that would assess the impact of racial segregation on the attitude of, of, of black kids because St. Louis actually had a one of the few desegregation plans like still in effect like as a result of this ruling and i believe the 70s or the 80s there were um black kids in st louis that were bussed out to the county right so i was really interested in studying that um and then uh, because hip-hop was such a important part of kids lives i added some questions about hip-hop and about rap music but but from that piece i and, I, and as I started writing on that piece and developing it, the piece morphed into something much larger than um, than something that was just about kids' attitudes. It ended up being a, a, a project that was really about assessing the impact of hip-hop and rap on people's lives, particularly in as much as 
black populations were exhibiting a, a great deal of anxiety about hip hop and rap, right? A lot of people thought that it represented the end of black life as we know it in some ways. So given that this literature started to um, started to develop around the time I was doing my research and there were no there were very few people testing these political claims empirically, I realized I had the opportunity to do something much more than what my original project was. So I was able to kind of make a, not quite a U-turn, but I was able to make kind of a left turn into a larger project and then was able to um, do something I think that's a little bit more interesting and important than just kind of a straightforward attitudinal survey book. Yeah, you do a lot in this book. So you've got some, uh, it's it's heavy theory and, and really well presented and very accessible. Uh, you also got qualitative analysis of um, some, some lyrics. You've got experiments in here. You've got uh, surveys in here. And you analyze uh, the National Black Political Survey. Is that what it is? Yeah, the National uh, Black well. Politics Study. Yeah. National Black Politics Study. Yeah. So um, before you dive into this book, can you just tell me, how you came to this title, Stare in the Darkness, The Limits of Hip-Hop and Black Politics. Okay, so, excuse me. Um, so the rap record, I'm a child of hip-hop. Uh, I'm, I'm a child of rap. I mean, house music is really my love, but, I mean, hip-hop and house are kind of like the air I breathe. And, I th and the most important record, rap record for me, is and probably will be Follow the Leader by uh, Eric B. and Rakim. And there's this passage in there um, that uh, I can't tell you where it occurs uh, in the song, maybe about two, three minutes in the track, maybe, where he really, he takes the listener literally outside of the planet and he takes them around the universe, right? What can you say as the earth gets further and further away, planets as small as balls of clay, uh, flowing through the, soaring through the Milky Way, worlds out of sight, Far as the eye can see, not even a satellite. Then stop. Then, as you stop and turn around and look, you stare in the darkness. Your knowledge took. So I knew that I wanted to give like a shout out to Eric B and Rakim because that record was so transformational in a number of different ways. So it's all about just finding the passages that fit with the tone of the book. And that stare in the darkness, that little stare in the darkness part, was the thing. Was the hook. Now the limits of hip hop and black politics. That was the suggestion of my editor, Peter Martin. The original, the original um, tagline was Stare in the Darkness, Rap, Hip Hop, and Black Politics, which doesn't really, it says what the book is about, but it doesn't really make a claim. Mm -hmm. But what Peter understood was that my book was actually about some of the constraints posed on black politics writ, writ large, even though I was using black popular culture. So he suggested the limits of hip-hop black politics and i was like i'm with that so that's how we got the title awesome all right follow me into a solo <laughs> <laughs> so what i want to do with that uh with the introduction right is kind of kind of set the tone for the rest of the book so i i start with um i start with probably there are a few moments when it's clear that hip-hop and rap are now mainstream things, right? So maybe one moment might be when Run DMC gets a lot of uh, props for Walk This Way. Maybe another moment is when the Beastie Boys blow up, right? Um, but a seminal moment is when Lauryn Hill gets um, 
uh, is awarded at the Grammys in the mid-90s. She gets like maybe eight or nine awards for um, for um, the miseducation of Lauryn Hill. It's like 1998, right? And she, she gets award after award after award. And we're not talking about R&B awards. We're not talking about you know rap awards. You're talking about mainstream awards. And at some point in time, you know, as she's getting up and she's giving shout outs and saying thank you, she says all this from hip hop. And for me, I use that moment to talk about the politics of rap as an art form within the art form and then use that as a segue to talk about kind of politics writ, writ large, the way political scientists study it. All right. Talk us through that. What's your main thesis? Um, so... The, so what I want to do with the book is a few different things, right? So first thing I want to do is make the is um, test the claims that a number of people are making about rap and hip hop uh, within the scholar. Um, a number of of scholars are making about rap and hip hop, but they you know they're not again they're not testing these claims empirically, right? They're making claims about the political content of rap lyrics. They're making claims about the effect of of listening to rap on consumers, and then they're making claims about the way rap and hip-hop kind of transform politics. These are all testable claims that haven't been tested. So one of the one of the things I want to do is I want to say, okay, these claim rap and hip-hop are serious things. We're making serious claims. Let's actually test them. That's one thing I want to do. The other thing I want to do, though, is I want to kind of expand what we I want to expand what we as political scientists actually think of as political, particularly as they relate to black populations. And as much as music has always played, popular culture has always played a really important role in um, black politics. If for no other reason, then there was a moment in time where black people couldn't participate formally in politics and had to use culture and other non explicit political vehicles to communicate politics and to deal with politics, right? So I wanted to extend what we think of as political. And then finally, I wanted to show how we could use the tools that we use to address like uh, straightforward political attitudes or the tools that we use to address organizational change, um, that we can use these tools to, um, to actually assess black popular culture. Oh, and um, one more thing, not fine. This is the final thing. And then the final thing I wanted to do was show how this neoliberal turn kind of affected and infected black politics using black popular culture. So so in the first chapter, that's basically what I want to, I kind of want to lay out the terrain. This is what, this is how people are studying um, rap on the one hand. These are, this is how people are studying black politics on the other. Um, this is what I want to do, and these are some of the ideas that I want to kind of introduce into our lexicon, ideas that I think we should take seriously. Yeah, that was awesome. Um, I, I really appreciated how you used kind of those uh, those things I have in my Michigan toolkit. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and uh, applying yes. it to uh, this edge of this, I would say, this edge of culture that uh, people maybe at the APSA conference will kind of look at you and say, really, is that supposed to be here? Right. Um, and, yes. and it was really, really great um, how you layered these different parts on top of each other. Um, I, I really, I really appreciate appreciated that. Um, so just take us through chapter one in this journey. You're the journalist. Okay. So what I wanted to do first was address 
the um the the so there are a few different ways to actually talk about the politics of cultural production you could talk about uh, the politics of production you could talk about the politics of consumption you could talk about the politics of circulation right so and and the and there are a number of different ways to talk about production where you can talk about production focusing on the content of the lyrics you could talk about production and take kind of a political economy approach and talk about changes in the way rap is actually created and the politics of that moment. What I choose to do in that first chapter um, is to really deeply focus on the lyrics, right? So to actually analyze to what extent these lyrics say what maybe people think they're saying, right? So the most important work for me in this chapter is the work of Imani Perry, who uh, in her book, Profit, uh, Profits in the Hood, uh, she talks about the um, about the use of realism in a certain type of rap lyric. And what I end up doing in that chapter is kind of playing with the idea of realism and adding this neo and uh, using adding isn't quite the word, but uh, dealing with the degree to which we see this neoliberal turn embedded in realist lyrics. Right. So I take about I think it's like 475 or 476 lyrics from like 1980, what? From like, from the early 80s to like around 94 or so, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I take them, I don't just take popular lyrics, right? Because I, what I want to do is show the degree to which this turn is expressed in lyrics as a whole, whether you're talking about people who are top 10, you know, top 10 MCs and making all types of money off their tracks or people who are just straight up um, people who are just straight up um, 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 independence, you know, people who unless you're deep, deep, deep into hip hop, you ne wouldn't necessarily hear of. So I take lyrics from like 89 to 2004, a sample of them. And then I just go into the lyrics and talk about what that means. And then what I find is that as opposed to. Uh, reacting to or as opposed to contesting that neoliberal turn that is that turn towards uh, business, that turn towards the business model as being the most important model in um, in American life, whether you're talking about politics, whether you're talking about um, of schools, whether you're talking about churches even, right? Um, the degree to which, I mean, what I see is that instead of contesting that turn, you actually see rap lyrics actually reproducing that turn, right? Whether whether they're talking about the hustler as the entrepreneurial figure, uh, whether they're talking about whether they're casting aspersions or demonizing black populations without the ability to use their to use and develop their own human capital. Um, that's what I that's what I spend that chapter really trying to uh, dig into. Awesome. Um, can you talk to us about just kind of the the, the different types of realism? Oh, um, okay. So. I talk about, so descriptive realism is the type of realism where supposedly people are just describing, kind of describing reality, right? They're not necessarily critiquing, they're describing it. And what you see is that with the descriptive lyrics, realics, uh, uh, I'm sorry, within this descriptive realist tracks, what you see is that they're actually, um, as these MCs are talking about this, what you see is kind of this first person move towards not um, towards lauding it in a number of cases, right? So it's not just that you're, 
you're standing outside as an objective passive observer saying this is what happens in the hood, you're actually becoming kind of they're using that 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 context that their hood they're describing to become an expert. And that move towards expertise gives them the ability to speak authoritatively about not only what happens in the hood, but what should happen in the hood, right? So they talk about themselves as hustlers and entrepreneurs, not just saying that this is what I have to do to survive, but in a number of ways, they're kind of saying this is what I should, this is what I'm supposed to do to survive, right? So um, one argument is that like you've got another form of realism, like social realism, where you've got people actually engaging in a certain type of critiques of the lyrics, right? And you do actually see that, but when even in the point where you're talking about people like critiquing the lyrics, they're still kind of um, embodying this really deep cultural critique of black bodies that actually does not end up, that does not necessarily necessarily lend itself to progressive readings, but it lends itself, if you flip it and and shove it just a little bit, it lends itself to really conservative readings that in some ways have more in common with Republican assessments of black populations than they do of progressive assessments. Yep, yep. All right, Lester, a little uh, knowledge is dangerous. Um, A little knowledge is dangerous. So what I wanted to do in this chapter was actually talk about the effects of uh, the consumption side, right? So we talk about um, production, consumption, and circulation. The consumption side is a straightforward, um, is is where I use um, kind of the straightforward Michigan toolkit, where by, by means of surveys and experiments, I actually assess how consuming rap and how actually being exposed to rap affects uh, listeners and consumers, and I do this using a, a, I, I do this using surveys that kind of go back, like to 1994. The National Black Politics uh, Study goes back to like uh, the early 90s. Then, and using a survey that I conducted in um, in um, St. Louis in like 2002, 2003, and then a set of experiments that I conduct around the same period in another Midwestern site. Right. To see how how um, rap and how rap exposure and how rap uh, consumption affects uh, listeners. Right. And there's um, what I tend to find is that in a few instances, rap kind of crystallizes pre-existing attitudes as opposed to turning attitudes in a new direction. And this, to a certain extent, are fits in what we know uh, about public opinion in general. And that is really difficult to actually change people's minds. But what we can do, particularly with uh, popular culture or particularly with something like the news, is make people more likely to take ideas that they've already that they already hold for granted. Right. So whether you're talking about ideas about leadership or whether you're talking about support for black political ideologies like nationalism or black political figures, um, that's what I find. And then when I look at the attitudes as far as um, my, my St. Louis survey, what I find is that people who listen to uh, rap or hip hop or people who listen to, um, listen to rap tend to have um, very, in some ways, they, they tend to have, in some ways they have attitudes we would expect. Like we'd expect kids who really listen to rap and hip hop to have certain attitudes about the police, um, attitudes that are negative. Um, and in some ways we do. 
But what I also find is that those same kids have certain types of attitudes about immigration that are kind of regressive um, and certain attitudes about other issues that are kind of regressive attitudes that we might not that make sense, but we wouldn't necessarily expect. Um, given that the lyric is not like the lyrics actually address these issues, right? Uh, and then with the wait, experiment, wait, are, are you exploring so, those in in your next book? Um, no, my not well. No, my next okay, book, what? 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 I'm listening. Uh, well, well, my next book is really going to be more about the neoliberal term writ large, uh, and it's going to have some attitudinal stuff but not a great deal of attitudinal stuff. So I address it. So some of the stuff I address directly. Like when I talk about circulation, a lot of that stuff I end up addressing directly in my next book. But some of the stuff like the anti-immigration stuff, I don't really deal with and I'm not going to really deal with and uh, at least not in my next book project. Okay. Any idea of where where that's coming from or or why those attitudes are are there? Um uh, I think and so if I'd have done, if I'd have known what I was, th- what I would find, right, um, mm-hmm. I think I might have asked some questions about maybe threat, um, mm-hmm. because I think part of it might be kind of the threat of the, um, the threat of the immigrant that, that, that Americans feel in general, but may be particularized in some ways in some black communities. Um, that's the thing that jumps out at me. And then that threat can be driven by a number of sources. So one way to think about that threat is to think about um, about is to think about, you know, maybe people think that they're going to have their jobs taken away from them. Right. That's kind of a direct type of type of threat. And that's a threat that can be enhanced by other forms of media. Uh, another way to imagine that threat kind of related is kind of the terrorist threat. Right. And again, that could be enhanced by the media. And then it could also be like direct experience, not so much in the terrorism thing, obviously, but with people actually com- feeling like they're directly competing and then losing out. But I'm not sure. I mean, that's just me t- kind of uh, kind of expanding on the ideas. I have to think about that some more. OK. And these experiments, you used videos. Yes. 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 Yes, yes. I did. Because it's not about it's one thing to say, OK, People, uh, these are the attitudes of people who tend to listen to rap, right? That's one thing where it's really difficult to actually make causal claims because it's possible that people already have these ideas and that draws them to rap. It's possible that rap is the thing that makes them have these ideas, but but solely looking at consumption doesn't really get get at it. What you really want to do is look at exposure. How does being exposed to rap change attitudes, right? So I showed... Um, a group of kids, um, a set, uh, like two sets of videos, and then I showed another group of kids, you know, I, 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 I had a control where I, sh- I had another group of kids where I didn't show anything. So one set of kids, I showed a set of video videos uh, from 50 Cent, right? Videos that are kind of descriptive, realist videos that um, that really talk about, that really emphasize crime and violence and, you know, certain types of uh, and, and crime, violence and drugs, right? Kind of the big three. Uh, and then I showed, you know, without critique. And then I showed them another set of videos by Public Enemy that were more politically laden, that had kind of an express political message embedded in it, right? And then after I showed them the video or the control, and you only saw one set of videos, then I just 
ask them a set of questions you know, afterwards, right? So because the population of the students are more or less the same, uh, I could posit, as you do with any experiment, that any differences we'd see in the survey responses would have to come from the exposure to the um, to the uh, treatment as opposed to aspects of, as opposed to demographic stuff, right? Uh, or contextual stuff, because they are all in the same school, all in basically the same class. So what I found was that at least in one instance that it that viewers watching rap videos were far less likely to believe that certain types of problems were problems in their neighborhood. So in that way it had kind of a kind of a a There's an article called The Not So Minimal Consequences of the TV News. I think that's the that, that's more or less the name that basically argues that people who watch uh, that television shows, television news shows tend to prime what people think of as important. Right. So if you see show after show after show that deals with crime over time, you're going to think crime is something that's very important to you, very important to your community as an issue. Um, what I found is the reverse of that, like actually watching videos make people less rather than more likely to actually think that certain types of things were were important. So in that way, so the subtitles, the limits of um, the, the limits of hip hop and black politics in that way, that's kind of a clear example of the limiting or constraining effect of, of rap and uh, of rap videos or at least rap videos as I assess them. Right. Where it's like mm-hmm. being exposed to the videos of somebody like 50 Cent would make people uh, could potentially demobilize people in some ways because for 50 cent this stuff is kind of the it's, it's the stuff to entertain folks with so if you're viewing this as entertainment rather than as social commentary you're much more likely to think that the issues that are addressed in there aren't really issues that are important to you even if they're issues that are being wrestled with in your community wow that was uh, an interesting finding and i wasn't expecting to, to read that at all yeah yeah so that's how I- I, that's one of the findings I think I was expecting um, more so than anything else. And I, um, yeah, that, I wasn't necessarily surprised when I saw that. Okay. All right. Uh, in chapter three, you talk about um, hip hop activism and the circulation of black, black politics. Yes. Um, so what I do is I look at the hip hop summit action network and I look at the national hip hop political uh, convention uh, as two examples of how um, how kind of sort of rap or, or black politics has to wrestle with um, kind of what I call political parallelism, right? Where 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 in order to be legitimate in some ways, where well, it's not just about legitimate legitimacy, but Black political entrepreneurs and making a decision to kind of jump into politics in a different way, they have to they have repertoires of action that they in part draw from the past and they draw them from the past in a a couple of different reasons. One is it is because they want to be viewed as legitimate. Right. The other thing is because they understand the current context as being kind of an extension of a previous context. So they just go back to see what other people have done. And then in part, they do it because they haven't, I mean, thinking about and engaging in politics is really hard work. 
And it takes a great deal of time to mobilize folks, much less kind of think of new ways to mobilize folk and create a new form of politics on on the fly. So what I did was I examined the degree to which the uh, hip hop um, Summit Action Network, which is basically run and led by Russell Simmons and um, and um, the brother who used to run the uh, Million Man March. Um, his name escapes me. The brother who run who um, who let used to lead the NAACP. Um, are you killing me? What's his name? Oh, my God. I'm, oh my God! I can't believe I'm I'm, I'm like blanking on his name. I'm having like a middle age moment. I can't believe this. Um, I'll find it for you. Ben Chavis. Ben Chavis. Thank you. Goodness gracious. Ben Chavis. Right. So uh, Ben Chavis is an old school uh, guy with all types of um, with a long civil rights history, uh, and Simmons is kind of new to politics, right? But he's kind of a baller. So it's so I look at the hip hop. Uh, Summit Action Network is kind of an example of people taking from a certain wing of historical black politics, using a lot of the techniques that we see in old civil rights organizations, kind of middleman brokerage politics approaches. Um, And then I look at the National Hip Hop Political Convention as kind of an organization that borrows from a more radical ring, right? That uh, borrows from a much more radical ring. And then you can uh, analyze this through examining their platforms, right? And then I analyze this actually examining their actions. And what I find in the Hip Hop uh, Summit Action Network is that to the degree they engage in politics, uh, using looking at, for example, the Rockefeller um, drug laws and their attempt to repeal that, what they really do is they situate themselves as middlemen between political actors, you know, between the governor of New York and in between people who are actually doing grassroots work on the one hand. And this has certain problems that I address in the book. But then on the, um, on the other hand, to the extent that they're really getting people who think of themselves as part of the hip hop community to, to think of themselves as, um, or to empower them or empower individuals in these communities, what they do is they use like, um, they use a number of neoliberal tactics to get people to think of themselves as entrepreneurs, right? So they've got this financial empowerment workbook that is that that's kind of like a uh, a, a neoliberal 101 textbook, right? And for them, that that embraces a certain type of political change, and that ha- again that has certain problems that I identify in the book. And then with the National Hip Hop Political Convention, I address how some of the um how they've got significant resource hurdles, even though their politics, even as they try to, um, even as they try to parallel like the, um, the, 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 the radical work of the early seventies, what they end up doing is kind of reproducing some of their their flaws, particularly they have a resource flaw that end up hamstringing radical activism in the seventies. And they don't quite wrestle with that. Right. So I talk about those two instances in uh, in one chapter uh, as examples of how hip hop kind of uh, of how hip hop uh, further parallels the limits of black politics, and then in the other 
chapter, I talk about um, uh, Kwame Kilpatrick, the mayor of Detroit, who, well, no longer mayor, who's viewed as the hip hop mayor in a number of different ways. And stylistically, he embodies a lot of what we think of as hip hop. In fact, he continues to embody it even after he's, um, he's had to resign, even after he was imprisoned and, and it's come out. He embodies a great deal of what we find, what a number of us find attractive about hip hop. But when you actually look, look at the policies that he em embraced as a Detroit mayor, as mayor of probably one of the blackest cities in North America, not the blackest and largest, um, what you find is he reproduces the policies of his predecessor, which in turn represent an attempt to neoliberalize neo Detroit in a way that, that would draw in investment on the one hand, in a way that will penalize black bodies who aren't quite able to adapt to the neoliberal turn on the other, right? So that's what I do in that chapter. And, and one of the funny things about any book that deals with kind of contemporary events is sometimes contemporary events can kind of, uh, kind of uh, jump ahead of you in a way. So I actually had to rewrite that chapter significantly because when he, I was starting that chapter, he was in office. And then wow. he had to resign. He, he, was re he had to resign by the time that chapter was kind of done. So I actually had to go back and make additions and address the whole uh, brouhaha about his, uh, about his uh, resignation and about him being removed from office, right? Because I thought that that also represented in the fact that we focused much more on that trial than the substance of his politics. I thought that that, um, that, that represents a, si a signal hurdle, not just for black politics, but for politics in general. And as much as we're, used, we're dealing with the politics of spectacle, like, oh my God, we spent $8 million um, protecting Kwame Kilpatrick from this case he, he was dealing with with these police officers, as opposed to dealing with the larger issues of the fact that Detroit was dealing with a $3 billion budget and very little of it was spent really dealing with the needs of black poor populations. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Wow. Um, you know, one of the things I really like that um, you do in the book, you paint visual pictures very well. And that becomes critical in the conclusion when you're talking about uh, President Obama or candidate Obama at the time and the future of hip hop politics. Um, and so can you just uh, talk to us uh, about that chapter? Um, so it's, it's difficult. Somebody would have slapped me upside the head had I written a book about hip hop and black politics, given when I wrote it and not dealt with, uh, not dealt with the election of President Obama. Um, if for no other reason than then the president, uh, then uh, not just the fact he was elected when I wrote it, but Obama's election isn't really possible without hip hop, right? And one of the things, with the one of the, I mean, it's beginning to be told now, right? The the story of how hip hop kind of transforms America in some really important ways. Um, but what I try to do in that final chapter is to show, is to give a few sense, a few examples of how hip hop specifically allows Obama to run, right? And, and allows him to get a certain type of success. So I believe I start off that chapter uh, talking about that moment where, um, where Senator Hillary Clinton is kind of challenging Obama's legitimacy 
as a candidate, right? And is implicitly um, engaged in kind of a racial critique, arguing that Obama won't, won't connect with white working class voters, right? Uh, and I thought that it was a really low place for her to go, particularly given the degree to which um, her um, Bill Clinton success relied on black voters. But I mean, you have to engage in a number different when you're really interested in becoming president you believe that your way is the right way um you're a number of us or a number of candidates are willing to 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 go as far as they need to go or as far as they feel they need to go right so there's that moment where she's basically talking about how he's illegitimate and can't speak to white working class voters and how she's the better choice for them now there are now he has a number of different ways he can respond to that moment right and so he can respond to it directly and say, well, listen, no, I can speak to white working class voters as well as you can. But that rhetoric, that that use of reason and rhetoric is kind of a non-starter. Like, I can't see that playing itself out. I can't see that really working well. Right. So he has a number of options along that line. The option that he takes is he ends up using he and is really there's a YouTube clip and Everybody who reads it at this moment will know the clip I'm talking about when he's talking about um, Hillary Clinton uh, and talking about his uh, his competitors in the Democratic primary and how people are going to try to attack him and try to take him out, take him out. And he's like, sometimes what you have to do is you have to kind of and he doesn't even say what he does. He just shows it and he brushes his shoulder off. Right. And the crowd goes wild. Right. Now, everybody who knows hip hop knows where that move comes from. That move comes from Jay-Z, right? Where he's talking about going, brush your shoulders off, right? And everybody goes wild because at that moment, what he's able to do is without using reason, but but going beyond and using something that's more than reason, he's able to make a claim that he is not just legitimate as a candidate, he's the legitimate candidate because he speaks to the issues of particularly of younger Americans who were, who were born, who were brought up on hip hop, white and black, Latino and Asian, more than any other candidate. And the crowd goes wild. And it's so deep in that moment because like the following Sunday, um, people are talking about the, his response on like the news, right? And one of the things I try to do as a uh, public intellectual is I try to add some color, literally and figuratively, to the news space. Because the news space is, even now in a multicultural world, it, it tends to be really, really um, mono, uh, monochromatic, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so you have these older, um, middle-aged and older uh, white pundits, white male pundits, who are all casting aspersions on his, on his move, on his little brushing his shoulder off thing, right? Because mm-hmm. they're like, oh my God, that's so elitist. Oh my God, that's so arrogant. They had no idea where he got that from, right? So what he was able to do was, by not by using rhetoric, not by using reason, he was able to dodge all of that by using this move that everybody had taken and adopted as their own. And that's not possible without hip-hop. The energy of his campaign, the way people were able to move to uh, maybe the way that people who were not black were able to move to his uh, campaign and were drawn to his campaign isn't possible without hip hop. Right. So I talked about that. And then but at the same time, I talked about the way that MCs responded to this moment because Jay-Z supported 
them. Uh, Kanye West supported them. And in fact, I know Jay-Z was at the inaugural. I believe Kanye was there um, as well, you know, sitting at the front row, in one of the front rows. But you have people uh, um, like Nas who are actually using or referring to Obama in the lyrics, right? So I talk about some of the different ways that people are dealing with him in the lyrics. And to a certain extent, you see this, this move that is a central aspect of black politics and other communities' politics, this move to valorize him or to romanticize him as this charismatic black leader who should kind of sort of go without uh, critique. But then you also see this complicated move where some people are kind of sort of embedding, at least trying to embed like little critiques, like, okay, is he really going to speak to our issues, right? So I kind of use that final chapter to talk about hip-hop as it relates to the Obama campaign and then to talk a little bit about where kind of the scholarship should and uh, could and should go from here. Awesome. This was really a great read, Lester. I appreciate uh, you visiting with us on New Books in Political Science. Uh, and I really appreciate you writing this book in the way that you did in the presentation, uh, which just really does a good job of bridging, you know, this old school toolkit uh, with these new questions and these new approaches and kind of following up on some of the questions that other scholars had raised but hadn't had the opportunity to answer. Thank you so much. Um, you told us a little bit about your next book. Do you want to talk about it a little bit more? Yeah, so um, the neoliberal turn is an important part of our lives. I mean, we we wouldn't have the Occupy movement. In some ways, the Occupy movement represents um, a response to the neoliberal turn, even though many of them may not technically understand it as such. Uh, I believe a lot of the central uh, changes in black politics, you know, uh, like the move towards black mayors who engage in certain types of policies, uh, the move towards um, the prosperity gospel in our churches, and um, even the way we deal with health-related issues like HIV AIDS, I think that they reflect kind of the neoliberalization of black politics. And while a number of scholars kind of address that in, in maybe talking about the context of their book, um, up till now, nobody's really dealt with that turn just and unpacked that turn. So what I was looking, so in the course of writing this book, I realized neoliberalism was really, really important uh, to the study of rap and hip hop, given where it develops and how it develops. And I was just looking for a site uh, that could show how it hurt, how it affects black politics, a site that I can then cite in my work. But I couldn't find a site, right? I mean, even somebody like Adolph Reed, who I think would be the, the natural person to address that, he hadn't addressed it, right? So I realized that um, I realized that that gap was the gap that I needed to fill, right? So that's what so my next book is it represents an attempt to kind of feel to fill that gap, to deal with the role of race in the neo liberal turn and then to show how uh, how something like the prosperity gospel um is reflective of the neoliberal turn so i'm i'm three chapters into it i'm kind of waiting to see what, what the response of my uh of the of the um academic presses are going to be and then i'm going to move on awesome we've been talking to lester spence assistant professor of political science at johns hopkins university and author of the new book Stare in the Darkness, The Limits of Hip-Hop and Black Politics. Thank you so much, Lester. Thank you very much for interviewing me. I'm so proud of you. 
This is Kenyatha Loftus, host of New Books in Political Science, and we've just spoken with Lester Spence, Assistant Professor of Political Science at Johns Hopkins University, about his new book, Stare in the Darkness, The Limits of Hip-Hop and Black Politics. It's something fabulous for you to read. Until next time. <laughs>